0: Hey, good morning. I'm going to invite you to open the Acts chapter 23. We left off last time in our study in the book of Acts, right here at verse 11, where Paul has uh, been brought before the Jewish council, which consisted of both Pharisees along with the scribes and also the Sadducees. I uh, separate these two groups in the Sanhedrin or the council, as it were, there were members of both of these parties, but there's a separation in thought and theology between the Pharisees slash scribes and the Sadducees, Uh, and that revolved around this question that Paul very masterfully brought in, or this issue that Paul very masterfully inserted into that circumstance, revolving around the question of the resurrection. As the council was uh, abusing him and questioning him and and looking for ways to put him down, and not just insult him, but ultimately to, to crush him, to stop him, to silence him, Paul, again, very skillfully, points out and brings to the fore an issue that would divide and confuse uh, these two groups in their interaction together. And again, that focused on the resurrection, but not the resurrection just generally. It was a general issue between these two. The Sadducees not believing in the resurrection uh, of any kind, really. And then the Pharisees and scribes believing in the resurrection, even the resurrection on the last day. And very specifically, Paul brings this up, not just because it's a general point of theological contention, but rather he brings it up in part because it is the essence of the gospel uh, as he said and we pointed out last time in first corinthians 15 the first first four verses paul brings up that important uh, primary point that he is reminding them of that uh, christ came and died according to the scriptures was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures and so uh, so paul brings that point in both in terms of its general truth, the idea of the resurrection, but even more specifically as an entrance for the gospel because the gospel is rooted on not a dead Savior, but a living Savior who died to take our sins away and pay that debt that we owed and ultimately conquering death by overcoming it and not being able to hold him down. So the resurrection is central to the gospel, just as the the cross is. And so Paul brings that out. And so it, it basically... Uh, causes confusion among them to the point where the guards who are watching this whole thing uh, begin to feel like they're going to tear Paul apart in this. And so they they pull Paul out of this while they're arguing and all that. And they put him in the barracks until the next day when they're going to begin now to transport him to Rome. And this is at that at the point at which Jesus meets with him and tells him to be of good cheer. Verse 11 again, that following night, the Lord stood with him, stood with Paul and said, be of good cheer Uh, Paul for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem so you must also bear witness at Rome and so we spoke last time again how the Lord was with him and his presence was there with Paul in the midst of this opportunity for the gospel and the ministry that he had called him to and so Paul is being reassured by the Lord uh, not only by the by the fact of his presence but if we think about the fact that Paul has had his wish fulfilled his prayer fulfilled to be in Jerusalem And also his desire to go to Rome is about to be fulfilled. And so this is what's going on and this is where we are. And we pick it up in verse 12 now, where it goes on to say that when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So a pretty sizable handful of men had conspired to kill Paul. Not just to try and arrest him or hurt him in some way they they literally want him dead uh, such is the uh, travail that can come with the uh, gospel ministry and so these are conspiring against him and they want him dead why again because he was once a pharisee he would have once been considered on their team but now he was a follower of jesus and that made him a threat uh, to them personally but even to their theology on the whole now of course you know, uh, Paul's theology was not one of destroying Judaism, rather was one as a message of the fulfillment of the promises of Judaism. This, of course, was the point of Acts chapter 15 in the First Council of the Church. This becomes the foundational point of so much of Paul's writing uh, when it comes to the gospel, the idea that the gospel of grace is one where nothing can be added to grace, nor does there need to be anything added to grace because Christ fulfilled the law in paying for our sins at the cross and rising from the dead. Therefore, we understand all the more fully, um, and, and we've talked about it many times, I won't go into it too much right here, but even if we look at the Old Testament as Paul does in Galatians, we realize that it has always been salvation by grace through faith. And so this message is one that is a tremendous threat to the religious establishment of the day that is holding on to the law all the while misunderstanding the purpose of it, again, as Paul goes on to explain in Galatians chapter 3. Now, here we are in uh, verse uh, 12 and 13. Again, there's a group conspiring to kill him. And in verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under great oath, uh, a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we're ready to kill him before he comes near. And so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now we learn a few things just in this little verse. You know, first off, Paul has a sister and a nephew. What we don't know is how Paul's uh, nephew heard this uh, going on, but he maybe was a servant uh, in that capacity. Who knows? Uh, But God had strategically put him in such a position uh, and had chosen such a one who Paul could trust uh, to hear about this news of this conspiracy to have him killed. And not just with these 40 people that are conspiring, but they've actually gotten with the Jewish council that has just been questioning Paul, and they get with them. And they work out a thing where they're gonna where where, where uh, they've got a plan a a grown conspiracy now to set Paul up in such a way that they can ambush him and kill him and of course they agree to this whole thing and so or is at least implied that they're uh, ready to that they agree with this whole idea now of course, this is something that on the one hand is disgusting to us it's it's massively hypocritical and all this kind of thing, but it's not inconsistent uh, if you remember this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, happened with Judas and the council and uh, the desire to crucify Christ, and so Paul, in some ways, is experiencing some of the same kinds of sufferings that Christ did as well. And there, um, you know, we could we could probably make a pretty good point of the idea of the fellowship of sufferings in that, and the idea of uh, even the apostles in Acts five uh, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the kind of uh, to suffer for the, the sake of Christ in that. Well, this is, again, as we've often mentioned, part and parcel with what it means to be involved, uh, not only in gospel ministry, but frankly, at that time, and one day soon again in our Western culture and in some places around the world, it's still true today, that this is just what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy that those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It just goes with the territory. And not to sound cavalier about it, not to make it sound like a light thing, because it's it's not something that we look forward to, but we ought to take stock in the and and recognize that in following Christ, this is what we signed up for this is uh you know this is the um you know the 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 afflictions that we'd endure now, but we we hold them in comparison uh uh to the glory that is yet to come these afflictions these even as Paul would call them light afflictions. Uh, that ultimately are working out a far more exceeding weight of glory. And so, uh, but this is what Paul is enduring right now. And uh, and so, again, uh, Paul's nephew is strategically situated by the Lord to hear and overhear this plot, and he goes and he tells Paul about it. And so, verse 17, when Paul called, or then, of course, having heard this, uh, Paul called uh, on one of the centurions and called him and said, "'Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him.' And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have uh, have agreed uh, 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 to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart, and he commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed this to me. So he's going to go ahead and do something about this, but he doesn't want word to get out that he's aware of this, uh, in part because it likely uh, it, it could lead back to Paul's nephew and get him... Uh, hurt and that kind of thing. And so the Roman likely recognizes this, the, the commander. And instead, uh, he sends him on his way and says, don't tell anybody that you let us know. And then uh, Claudius Lysias, as we find out is the commander's name, he ends up taking care of this. So verse 23, and he called two centu- for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And prepare mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So, God not only protected Paul, but he gave him a pretty cush ride to his next appointment. Uh, <laughs> he's got this huge entourage: two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen. He's extremely—it's essentially like he's being led, almost not in quite the grandeur of a of a you know of a you know of somebody important or of prominence, but but essentially that is kind of how he's being transported. He's, uh, he's not just gonna sort of ride on this uh, accessible, somewhat vulnerable kind of caravan that could be attacked by people. Remember, these 40 plus assumed that they would be able to ambush Paul and, and truth be told, if they ambushed Paul who was being guarded by, by a couple of Roman soldiers, it is, you could presume that their intention would be to probably have to jump these Roman soldiers as well. Uh, the soldiers weren't just going to let their charge be killed by uh, by bandits and that kind of thing. So they would have fought and likely died uh, at the hands of these 40 uh, ambushers and that kind of thing. Now, what's interesting and what we don't know necessarily is that since... Uh, well, and Paul's nephew doesn't necessarily um, uh, 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 tell them that the... Well, yeah, actually he does. He says that the Jews actually kind of conspired with these 40. So what we don't know is if the commander goes back and sort of exacts any justice from the, um, you know, from the conspirers on the Jewish side either. You know, who knows how this fully unfolded in terms of, um, not Paul, but in terms of those who were conspiring. What we do know is this goes on here that the, guard, the, the, the commander has now set Paul up to be not just taken by some Roman soldiers, but heavily guarded by a lot of Roman soldiers. And so this is quite the turnaround. And so, along with this, he writes a letter, verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, this is the author of the letter. It was typical in there, uh, in, in in ancient writings, for the author of the letter to have his name at the top. In other words, from this person. Uh, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Now Felix is Antonius Felix, who was the procurator of this area of Judea and Samaria between the, age, uh, era, uh, the years of about 52 to 60. Uh, I think exactly 52 to 60. But uh, he was essentially something akin to a Pontius Pilate in terms of his being a procurator over an area. Uh, this puts him in sort of a middle management kind of a position in the Roman um, you know, flowchart of leadership. And so he's, not, he's far below a Caesar. He's not um, uh, of, uh, of that kind of caliber, but he's not unimportant by any definition. Uh, and so this is somebody who is in charge of keeping the peace over an area. Now, Felix, like Pilate, uh, like Agrippa, like many who were in charge of different, uh, of different, at different times of this area, this would not have been a great gig uh, because by and large the Jews were seen as troublemakers to the Romans and so to be given that assignment was to, to sort of be assigned to an area that nobody really wanted and was likely gonna cause you to pull your hair out from time to time. Uh, This tends to be the story historically. You can read Josephus, you can see this, you can read some of the first century writers of that time uh, who describe the interactions. Matter of fact, much that goes on in the intertestamental period bears this out as well. And so, um, so anyway, so this is kind of the situation there. It's good to sort of color that in a little bit so we get a, a feel for what's going on during this time. So Festus, uh, or Felix, I should say, Festus will come later, but Felix here, um, you know, is being told of what's coming here, which from Felix's perspective, at first glance, when he gets this letter, his thought is like, oh, great. At least I know these what problems are coming, but to him, it's just more problems, uh, just to give you a sense here. But again, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, of course, you know, Claudius uh, Lysias kind of looks like a hero here a little bit. I'm I'm doing my job. I'm protecting the prisoner. I stepped in and did my thing, you know, and that's kind of, you know, you, this is called jockeying for position. This is, hey, I want my name to be remembered the next time promotions start coming around and that kind of thing. And truth be told, he did do his job well. Um, So, um. By the way, I'll, I'll, I'll add this in here before we go on further, because when we talk about the Jews and their persecution of Paul or their crucifixion of Christ or, uh, or, or just persecuting the church and that kind of thing, uh, I, I mention this in church all the time when we talk about Israel and that, and that is that I wanna make absolutely clear that when we talk about the Jews, I'm not being snide about it. I'm not in any way um, trying to... Um, Uh, shine on God's chosen people. I mean, they are his chosen people. They were during this time, they are now, and they will uh, be during the tribulation period and all that's coming in our day. Um, But when we talk about the Jews, we do acknowledge on the one hand that they did reject their Messiah. We don't go so far as to mistakenly believe that they somehow forfeited all their promises because of this. Um, Again, I'm trying not to go so far on this that we get off track, But when God made promises to Abraham uh, back in Genesis 15 and 17, 12, 15 and 17 really, um, these promises were unilateral and irrevocable. They, They were based on God's faithfulness. And in Romans 9 through 11, the same Paul we're reading about here, who goes on to write the book of Romans, Um, he also spoke about this and and used the word irrevocable when it comes to the promises that God has made his chosen people. So we always want to make sure that on the one hand, we acknowledge what happened historically. We know that this is what happened. But on the other hand, we don't sort of take on this replacement theology mindset where suddenly now Israel is set aside and the church sort of becomes the new Israel in this. Uh, That's not disregarding the idea of spiritual Israel that Paul also talks about, but this is not a replacement thing in Paul's thinking. This is an also. And that's why he speaks in terms of being grafted into the vine and those kinds of things. I would challenge you to read Romans 9 through 11 on this regard. Uh, and we'll, of course, we'll cover that in our study in Romans as we continue to make our way through that. But <sighs> I managed to get through that without getting too sidetracked. So here we are, uh, verse 28. Now, when I, when I wanted to know him and the, and the reason that they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. In other words, I stepped in before they killed him, uh, essentially ex- uh, exercising capital punishment without an actual crime. Now, justice, uh, even though the Romans were often seen as cruel... Extremely heavy-handed, uh, iron fist kind of a thing. Um, justice and law and order and proper procedures and things like this were also an integral part of their society and the expectations that they maintained as they dealt with crime and criminals and those kinds of things. And so, when they exacted justice, it was ex- it was it was extreme. But they also did go through the process. In uh, in a way that we might even call fair, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's it's there's uh, they had a they put a high premium on this kind of thing, and so let's um, not say there weren't abuses like in any culture, but they are known for this kind of thing, and so we see this going on here in Claudius Lysias's letter to Felix, uh, verse thirty. And when it was told to me uh, that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded. His accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell." So again, for the sake of proper procedure and that, plus the fact that this is especially important, because Paul's a Roman citizen. He's not just a Jew. He's not just fluent in Hebrew and Greek, but he also is a Roman by birth. And so this is a very important thing, because if you're going to kill a Roman citizen, that has heavy repercussions. Uh, And so for Claudius Lysias's part, he's making sure that things are being done as by the book as possible. And so I stepped in, I got this thing taken care of, I protected a Roman citizen, I'm sending him to you, and I've commanded that those accusers of his come and stand before you and lay out their charges. And so that's what we'll end up seeing in chapter 24. But to finish this up, in verse 31, the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which is a city... That is, on the way, heading from Jerusalem, but they would go through this, uh, uh, down, as they took the path to get there, the road to get there, they, uh, towards Caesarea, which is where they're ultimately going to be headed next, they end up st- uh, stopping here in Antipatris for the time being. Now, the next day, they left uh, the horsemen to go, went, uh, to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea, they had delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now the praetorium is where the guards would be in Herod's sort of palace kind of area in this. This is the area, by the way, or um, this is the area here in Caesarea in that but the praetorium you might recall in uh, in Jerusalem was an area that the Pharisees would not enter into when they brought charges uh before Pilate about Jesus and so Pilate had to go out to them because they felt they would defile themselves by going into the praetorium and so this is a, a similar praetorium uh set up here now in Caesarea so um and this is an area where Herod would reside and so um, so anyway, so Paul is now brought here and he's awaiting his accusers to come and accuse him. So that being said, we're going to stop there. And uh, I think next time we'll come back here and kind of move forward with this story and cover another chapter or so before we maybe dive back into our Roman study. But um, but I mentioned along the way, we're actually getting kind of close to finishing the book of Acts. And so I would imagine the next few weeks we'll probably get toward the end of this. And uh, and uh, and I'm hoping that uh, as we've often mentioned along the way, certainly from the outset, that this book of Acts and all that we can glean from it is something that is of particular value to us today, just like it would have been to those then. Uh, It gives us inspiration for living on our faith in the midst of persecution. It reminds us of how Jesus is with us in the face of that persecution. Uh, it reminds us of His providence and how He works out circumstances around us. You know that that point at which Paul's nephew is just happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear this uh, this conspiring against Paul. Of course, I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek. It wasn't just happening to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, um, um, you know, God put Paul's nephew there. As a matter of fact, in Job. You know, you might be, uh, of course, you're familiar with the book of Job, but, you know, along the way, um, you know, we come across this passage in chapter five where it speaks of God frustrating the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. And we see this in action here, not only in this chapter, but so often throughout the book of Acts. Well, what is that? But a reminder that God is very present and He's a present help in time of trouble, uh, that He is working out His purposes and plans. And that by his grace he invites us to be involved in them. He has he has a purpose for things and for us in accomplishing those things. Um, you know whether it's Paul in prison or 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 you know in the various places that he's brought and the testimonies he gets to give. Uh, whether it is um, you know uh, Peter in jail and that kind of thing or Paul with the uh, in silence with the Philippian jail. You know all these different things we see going on here that at If we were in their sandals and this was happening to us, our first response to those difficulties and trials and tribulations might be that God had sort of benched us for right now, or maybe something had happened where this isn't the will of God being unfolded, when in fact it is very much the will of God, it is the very center of the will of God that that Paul here or Silas or Peter or any of the others that uh, with Paul would have experienced hardships in that. It was actually God's will to put them in those circumstances because He was working in there, and so we see God's hand on these things. Uh, and of course, it reminds us not to view things from a worldly perspective or to from from a from a flesh perspective, but to recognize, as Paul says in Romans, all things work together for good. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. So praise the Lord for that. And I, And as we go through the book of Acts, these are just some of the lessons that come to the fore as we make our through our way through the sacred text. So it's, it's, it's just wonderful. It's awesome. I think so, at least, just reading this passage and considering it and mulling over these ideas. And I hope it's of some benefit to y'all as well. So thanks for watching and listening, and we'll pick up here again next time. But for now, Father, we want to thank you for your word and ask you to bless it as we continue to make our way through it. Help us to learn the lessons, to see the things there that you want us to see, to recognize uh, how you worked in those days with those early believers, and to ask you to work in those ways, uh, or in whatever way you would choose in our day as well. You know we we want to we want to you know mentally and emotionally as best as we can understand that that sometimes this means being persecuted in ways that are exceedingly uncomfortable and difficult and trying. Uh, And we want to know that, but we also want to learn to get comfortable with that idea in a way because this is what the Scriptures tell us happens to believers. Even as Jesus said, if they hated him, it shouldn't surprise us that they'll hate us as well. So help us, Father, to be disciples. Uh, In the truest sense of the word, what we really do, uh, look, act, speak, um, live, the way Jesus did, to the best of our ability, as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would, in fact, uh, empower us in these ways, that he would not only fill us to overflowing for the sake of of just that desire to be empowered for those works of ministry, but also to strengthen and fortify us when we find ourselves facing opposition and persecution. We uh, know that we're not alone in these things. We're not orphans by any means, and Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us, but he also has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and also to remind us of all the things He said, to lead us into all truth, to give us the words to say when we're brought before magistrates and such. Father, all these things, are uh, are promised to us as believers as we walk uh, with Jesus. So thank you, Father, for calling us and giving us that opportunity. To help us to be faithful as these things unfold. And again, thank you for your Word that helps us to understand more and more about these things. We love you, we praise you and bless you, and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.